Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Mike Adams, co-founder and CEO of Grain, a meeting insights platform that's raised $22 million in funding. Mike, thanks for chatting with me today. Awesome to be here. Yeah, so before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Awesome. So my name's Mike. I'm father of three little kids, nine, seven, and three. I'm originally from Utah, spent the last 10 years in San Francisco before moving to uh, Paradise, Southern California, Orange County, where we have all the room for parks to run and play versus, uh, you know, the 10 years in a more cramped situation in the city. But we do miss our San Francisco time. And a few things that I saw on your LinkedIn that I want to ask you about. So I, I see you sold a company that you founded to WeWork back in, was it 2018? Yeah, that's correct. So Grain is my, the third company I've been the co-founder of. And so the second company was called Mission U. It's actually where the idea for Grain came from. I always think the best ideas and market insights come when the act of solving your own problems. And so it was a school built entirely on the back of Zoom in 2016 is when we started. And uh, the premise is uh, alternative to college, kind of skip the college degree, get a job at Spotify. It worked really well for our students. I actually uh, have a kind of case study lecture I do. I just did it last week at, at Stanford every year about like the lessons learned and whatnot. But the ultimate outcome was that the kind of Newman's decided to, you know, get involved in some capacity and, and the school ended up uh, getting shut down shortly after acquisition, which was a little bit sad, but I had uh, seen kind of the opportunity to start Grain and, and kind of went straight from Mission U into, into Grain. And my co-founder went on to work with the Newmans at WeWork. And did you personally have interactions then with Adam Newman? I did. Yeah. So he came to our office in San Francisco and I uh, was interviewed by Rebecca and, you know, the We Crash series on Apple TV, you know, it's actually, they mentioned our company in there. And I, I was kind of surprised at that because they acquired a, a lot of companies that their cap table was massive and they were very acquisitive, but I did meet them. Uh, it was not an opportunity I was like super interested in pursuing in terms of, uh, you know, changing from a company that I co-founded and started and was running and was passionate about to working with them on an elementary school that I think got closed down about a year after the acquisition. So, but I, I did meet them along the way. And I was going to ask about WeCrash. So how did that live up to how they actually are in person? Was it similar or completely different? At least, you know, from my limited experience, I think was, it seems like they did the research. Nice. Always interesting to hear how, how people talk about it. Let's do two questions now just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as an entrepreneur. First one is what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Yeah, I was thinking through, there's kind of different reasons why you admire different founders. But in particular, I was thinking around just like really solid business and company culture as I really admire Sid over at GitLab. And one of the things I admire is not only just the thoughtfulness at which, you know, they lead and, and guide and grow their company. But in particular, their transparency and generosity and sharing a lot of those policies. I don't ultimately like have a strong passion for fully remote work. I we were just you know, discussing before. I have a LinkedIn post that you know kind of went viral like a month ago about how I actually hate fully remote work as like the only means. But even though that's what GitLab is all about, but I really respect and appreciate you know the thoughtfulness and and the transparency and the way that they've gone about and built their business. And in particular, even some of the values exercises they went through was heavily inspired as we were creating our own values here at Grain. 
And I just, I draw a lot of inspiration from really thoughtful founders who have built great businesses and are extremely transparent about the way they operate. Yeah, Sid's documentation of the IPO process and what they went through there and then post-IPO, what it's been like has been super enlightening and it's fun to read. I don't think there's probably ever been a CEO of a public company who's so open and transparent with everything like he is. It's truly phenomenal. And what's crazy is you can kind of trace it back going to before they were that big and and they've really been that transparent from the beginning. So there's a lot of things to kind of learn that you can't really learn other than if you know someone chooses to be as transparent as they have been. So it's one of the reasons I looked up to him in particular and, and their company. Absolutely. Great call out. What about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you as a founder? And, and this can be a business book or can also just be a, a personal book that's influenced how you view the world. Yeah, totally. So I have major recency bias, but I just binged Boys in the Boat yesterday or the, over the weekend. And man, that was really amazing. And what I loved about it is the story of the 1936 crew from Washington. It's just a bunch of like hillbillies. And they went out to the Olympics to you know beat Adolf Hitler's crew in the Germany Olympics, and, you know, in the Olympics that were hosted in Germany. And what I took away from it from like a business startup perspective, and it's kind of popular amongst the new startup crew, is just like the camaraderie that comes with, you know, trust and how, you know, you really have this unit that operates as a whole that has to kind of be in sequence and how important and meaningful that is, not just from, you know, success on, in their case, in the water and in our case, you know, in business, but also at like a personal connection, like life is short. You know, I spent the last 10, 12 years, 10, 11 years in startups. And, you know, most of my closest friends and closest relationships have come from, you know, those business and working relationships as you're, you know, truly kind of growing in sequence with people that you keep working with over the years and you have opportunities to kind of go back to again and again because you click. And uh, I just, that really resonated with me. Nice. You're the second person to recommend that book. So I'll uh, have to add it to my list now. Especially the last chapter where they, call out like the intensity of that final race. I was just like on the edge of my seat listening to the audiobooks. So it's, uh, it's well written. <laughs> nice. Well, I look forward to checking that out. Now let's dive deeper into the origin story. And I know you touched on it there a little bit, but could you just expand on the origin story a bit more? Yeah, totally. So I kind of got lucky, really. I moved to San Francisco Bay Area. I met a, a person who said he was starting a company. I was like, I hate my job in consulting. I'll just like do this with you. And then it turned into like a co-foundership. And, you know, that company's still, you know, running and thriving. And and uh, that co-founder left and then is now back in a second stint as a CEO. And and so I was very fortunate to kind of cut my teeth in, in startups that way. But I was always looking for a great startup idea where I could be the CEO and it would be my idea. And, you know, so in 2016, I was just, you know, searching and looking for it. And I really felt like it was kind of forcing any opportunity or company. I wasn't super passionate about any one direction. And I came, you know, across my second co-founder, Adam, and he had a really strong conviction and it lined up with my background in education and my passion in education. So we started that company together. But the first insight I had was a recognition because I'd been in the education space for a while about how important it was to take the qualitative data that went into decision-making. In my case, it was around admissions interviews. We would find out six months later whether someone was like a good admit or a bad admit, and then all the data was lost around like why we made that qualitative decision. And so I felt like because everything was digital on Zoom, we could have a perfect record so we just started recording literally every single meeting, every interview for research perspective, admissions interview, team meeting, and we would pull them off of the Zoom cloud and into our own kind of piece of software. Uh, we called it the Rico repo, a recording repository. And then when Mission New got acquired, it was pretty clear to me that that was going to be a trend in the market that I wanted to kind of be on the front lines of. And so we started Grain in 2018, about two years before COVID. And then when COVID hit, we were 
kind of perfectly positioned. We had just raised the seed round about nine months before. And, uh, you know, that really just kind of amplified from there. But people are like, oh, man, this is such a you know great idea. How did you move so fast after COVID? And it was like, well, you know, we saw, you know, this trend in the marketplace well before COVID. And that's so a little bit more about how I got started. Wow. So good timing there. And looking through your website, I see you have some really impressive logos. You have Zapier, Webflow, ClickUp. Can you talk us through how you acquired logos like that as a startup? Yeah, totally. So there's mixed belief on this uh, whole, if you build it, they will come. But I do believe great things kind of come from just building good products and solving problems. And I had the advantage of solving a problem for myself. Like I genuinely needed our product at my previous company. And and I was like, if I'm going to start a new company, I'm going to need this product for that company as well, for our, our research and everything else we were doing. So for a while, actually how we acquired our first customers like Podium, who's you know one of our listed logos, we used userinterviews.com just to try to like find people who are in our target demographic. We knew it was probably going to be useful for like research settings. So we were trying to find some product managers. One of my, the people I was interviewing just as, from a research perspective was a guy named Jason, who was a product manager at Podium. And then he spread it on his team. And now they have 150 people, you know, at Podium and they're one of our, you know, longstanding larger accounts. And so it's kind of a lot of times you just have to just guerrilla style, get the right people who you're building for in front of it to try it. And then a lot of times it kind of goes from there. It's like a little bit of that, like guerrilla tactics. And then the other side of it is just kind of launching. And so, you know, some of those logos in particular, like uh, I know Steve from Zapier, for example, I don't think he's there anymore, but he just heard about it when we had launched. And so the other thing that I think we did that was smart was when we were brand new, we didn't let anybody sign up for the product without an onboarding session. And so what that did is it allowed us to develop these relationships with some of the people that were inside of large companies where they had an individual use case, and then we could kind of tailor the product a little bit more, understand how it was growing and spreading. And so that's where a lot of those kind of came from, was more just guerrilla tactics, putting it out there, you know, responding to people and then developing relationships as, you know, you start to, your software provides value for people. And was it hard making that decision to do the one-on-one onboarding? I feel like Superhuman is the the company I hear of a lot that, that did that. And I you know it worked for their growth, but I think it also caused some friction. At least that's what I've heard people talk about. I would recommend it for every startup every time for at least a few months, you know, like, you know, I can say even at Grain, we wanted to graduate from it, right? We wanted to be like, okay, we don't need to do these concierge onboardings anymore. So we went to general release about six months later, and then all of our metrics just really plummeted and we didn't know why. And we were like, what's going on here? What's happened? Like we, everything was up and to the right. And then like what happened? And it was because we hadn't really cracked the nut. We just kind of pulled off and hopes that the product would be more self-explanatory. You know, in particular, our product is, I think, a little bit even more needs this because you need a experience on the product. Like I'm using Grain on this very call to, to record it so I can share it with my team. But you can't just kind of like try and experience the product very easily without getting on some sort of sample or demo call. And those onboarding sessions provided a means for us to be able to you know, facilitate helping them to get their recorder into the call and experience the power of Grain. And then also you know, that generated content that was actually useful for them to go back and reference and then share with their team as they, you know, kind of expanded their brain workspace with others that that became kind of a training that was useful for other people, even if they didn't, you know, need that second and third and 10th, you know, onboarding. It was just usually that first one in the workspace that we focused on. Makes a lot of sense. And can you talk us through what the competitive landscape looks like today for you? Yeah, it's evolved a lot. It's like really fragmented and verticalized. And what we're trying to do is kind of focus on, we've always been a horizontal solution. And so out the gate, there's been, I would say that 10,000 pound girl in our space was gone. 
G-O-N-G.io. And they're explicitly for sales. They're top down in their motion. They're extremely expensive per seat. And they've been around for about a two years when we started. And so I actually had not even heard of them when we started. And I, I found them, you know, a little bit later. But they're a highly verticalized solution. And even up until like a year or so ago, they only had about 2,000 customers. But their customers tend to be, you know, large companies and, and large enterprises. And so they have a very, very different motion than us. But I would say are kind of in the same space. And they're verticalized, but we're, you know, focusing on the, on the horizontal. And I would say outside of the sales use case, you know, we've really found our niche in, you know, what we call customer insights. And what we found was just as we threw the product out there and kind of saw where it stuck is, yeah, salespeople really liked it um, because not everybody had access to this, like, I would say premier sales tool like Gong. But the use case that really ended up resonating was, you know, customer insights and customer interviews. And in particular, even if salespeople are using it, one of the things they love doing in Grain, because we have, I would say, a transcript-based video editing. It's like, it's like a video editor made for conversations where you just paint the text in the transcript you want, click a button, and now you have the 20-second highlight that perfectly corresponds to that part of the transcript. And what people loved about that was that they could actually, you know, snip it out and throw the voice of the customer describing the bug or describing, you know, the feature that they want or the objection that they have. And we found that, you know, sales both love to use that as well from a product influence perspective, especially for small teams, but also like, you know, user researchers and product managers and marketers and really anybody who's kind of talking to a customer. So that's how we've kind of like found and established our uh, position in the marketplace is this, you know, voice of the customer movement of a recognition that it's far more powerful to communicate by letting the customer speak for themselves, you know, using a, a green highlight clip, than having to try to like play the game of telephone and summarize it. But we also have, you know, other use cases that are, you know, more in the coaching or in the record keeping, or even in the performance management that people use grain for, but are maybe not the one that we kind of see as the primary use case. And how do you think about category creation? Is this a new category that you're creating or is this part of some existing ones? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, you know, play bigger and, and all those, you know, great categories, creation books. I think about those a lot and, and what's the movement and Andy Raskin. I really like a lot of what he talks about in terms of, you know, kind of old game and new game and category creation. You know, ultimately what I would say is that we are a new flavor inside of an existing category. And that category is, I would say, voice of the customer. It's, it's customer feedback, it's customer insights. It's a recognition that, you know, in order to build the best products and make the most money, you have to stay close to your customer. And historically, how people have done that is surveys and sometimes like, you know, panels and other things that aren't as useful. But what we've found is that, you know, user experience researchers and product managers and marketers and anybody else who's trying to understand the customer and some, and a lot of times founders and even salespeople in their discovery, you know, they're constantly doing this work of understanding, you know, qualitative problem through informal means of just talking to people. And so I'd say like kind of our, our unique approach of what we've done is recognize that as those conversations went digital over Zoom, it's now, you know, you don't get on planes and talk to your customers unless it's a huge account where it's, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars anymore. Most people are just talking to their customers using customer success calls or account executive calls on, on Zoom or on Meet or on Teams. And so it's this, you know, category of data that historically has kind of just gone neglected or turned into like, like I said, the game of telephone or you rely on your nodes. And so I would say we've kind of created a new means of being able to extract, to solve the problem that has existed for a really long time on, given that kind of there's been this paradigm shift of how that information is being collected and, and those problems are being solved, opening up this kind of digital exhaust that grain can kind of process and turn into something that's, you know, insightful and useful out of what normally just either didn't exist or was too messy to use. And if you've gone through, you know, some of Andy Raskin's stuff, obviously he preaches the idea of 
of movements. So how do you define your movement then? Is it voice of the customer? Or what's that actual movement and how do you define it? Yeah, I would say the movement that's already there is just this customer centricity, customer obsession, voice of the customer. The part that, you know, that's unique for us is that we make it literal. You know, there hasn't been a way before grain to really, you know, hear that 20 seconds where the person said it themselves. And so that's, I would say, how we kind of think about, you know, Andy talks a lot about like a lightsaber or a superpower that you're giving your target audience. And I think that what we give is this ability to influence through, you know, advocacy using that literal voice itself in a way that was always just had to kind of be a layer removed before. Makes a lot of sense. It's super insightful. Now, as I'm sure you've experienced with this company and your previous companies, going to market with an innovative product isn't easy. What would you say has been your greatest challenge so far and how'd you overcome it? COVID, which I'm <laughs> sure would be... <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'll talk about COVID because there's a lot of things that COVID did that was great. Like as soon as COVID hit, like we raised $3 million a month later because, you know, we were in the right place at the right time with the right solution. And, and we were, you know, wrote it perfectly. But then it also, especially with how the capital markets were, you know, it was just an absurd amount of money in the market for a really long time. We're also fortunate that we were able to time the market and, and raise our Series A from Tiger Global, you know, during, I think, a good time to raise money. So we're very well capitalized. But in particular, you know, the remote work when you're in the early stages or you're still trying to find those aspects of product market fit is really, really difficult to do completely remote. And so, you know, I'd say the biggest challenge is navigating through that completely remote. It's just some people are better at it than others. I think, you know, I mentioned Sid. I think, you know, I really look up and respect these intentionally, deliberately fully remote companies. But I found that we are moving now so much faster. We're a lot more on the same page. We're a lot more synced when it's not like we have to have everything in person, but I, you know, fly to my team now and, you know, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time in hotels as a CEO, but it, a lot of it is just to get this in-person time. So I say the thing was COVID, but it was really, you know, the challenges of, of iterating quickly, you know, at a startup stage, you know, when you don't have that San Francisco office with the taco truck that we used to have, you know, that shut down six months after COVID because it was clear none of us were going back. Makes a lot of sense. Now, last question here for you before we wrap. If we zoom out into the future, what's the three-year vision for Grain? Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like we're in the right place at the right time with two trends. I would say there's really three. One is the, you know, the voice of the customer movement. We're not the, you know, innovators there. It's just, it's common sense and, and the best companies have been doing it forever. Then two is, is that this new category, this new, new type of data that is extremely useful for rallying around and aligning around the voice of the customer in digital conversations is now more normal to capture and record these conversations and it's part of kind of the company record. And then number three is the generative AI that is happening. I mean, we've been keeping an eye. We've always known that, you know, automation has been the key to overcome some of the more like frictionful parts of our user experience where we ask the user to do a lot of work. I mean, it's just phenomenal to see over the last three months. I mean, just that shift from GPT-3 to GPT-3.5 and we're excited about GPT-4. It's completely changed the way that we can think about solving the user problem because we don't have to hire, you know, a massive team of machine learning, you know, specialists to be able to train our own custom models to be able to produce some really, really useful output and insights and summaries for our users. And over time, we will invest more and more in, I would say, in those teams. But it has been really interesting to kind of see how just the shift in the last few months has built on the trends we've seen over the last few years and kind of set us up for the next three years. But I really feel like, you know, what the large language models in GPT-3 have done is very similar to what we saw in like 2008 with mobile. All of a sudden, you know, you can build brand new, you know, value to customers and, and users and consumers when you have a GPS in your pocket that's connected to the internet. I feel like, you know, a similar thing is happening now that you can take a large language model and train it on a specific, you know, use case 
or give it a specific task based on the prompt, or even give your users the ability to write prompts on the data that you hold on their behalf. It's just mind blowing in terms of like how it's shifted, you know, what's possible in the last three months to the point where I know that it's, that's going to be at the front and centered over the next three years. But I think it's going to be very difficult to predict exactly, you know, how it'll play out. Makes a lot of sense. And what would you say excites you most about that vision? Yeah, I think the vision is that we recognize that like, it's a lot of fun to build things that people want. It's really valuable. It's it's good economically. It's how you can provide for your family. Like there's a lot of good that comes from being, you know, customer aligned, customer centric. And the reason why people don't do it as much as they could or they should isn't because they don't want to or because they don't see the value of it. Like I said, that movement, you know, predates us around the voice of the customer. It's because it's really time consuming and you're really strapped and you're not as many hours in the day as you would like. And Grain's opportunity is to just make all of that so much more easier and to turn the work that you're already doing into customers by talking to them about sales into insights that everybody can benefit from. And so I get really excited about the kind of removing a lot of that monotony and allowing teams to build better products by being more closely aligned to the people they're building them for. Nice. I love that. All right, Mike, unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. Before we wrap up, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, for sure. I'm on Twitter. Um, as I've been like super heads down, I've been less, uh, I'll start tweeting a little bit more uh, here soon, but I'm Michael Glenn A on Twitter. And I also post on LinkedIn occasionally. You can find me uh, just Mike Adams. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, talk about what you're building and share this vision. This is super exciting and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Thanks, Brett. It was a lot of fun. 